Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On, broadcasting from WFHB radio station located in Bloomington, Indiana. We're a multiple award-winning show now in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Greetings. I'm William Hosea. Also in tonight's broadcast, we are dedicating a segment to NBA legend Kobe Bryant, who died tragically yesterday in a helicopter crash. All this and more in the next hour of Bring It On. But first, we are again hosting representatives from Bloomington's Hannah Center, an Indiana nonprofit serving women who come seeking help in making decisions about their pregnancies, assistance with material needs and related concerns. Last time, we discussed their wide array of services along with ways to eliminate racial and socioeconomic disparities in maternal and infant mortality. Tonight, we want to shine a spotlight on sex trafficking. Tonight's content may not be suitable for young listeners. William, why don't you share some stats with us? Well, research shows that human trafficking occurs globally and in every state in the U.S. Um, Victims are recruited, transported, transferred, or harbored through force, abduction, fraud, or coercion for improper purposes, including force, labor, or sex according to the United Nations. It differs from prostitution, which involves the illegal act of receiving money for a sexually uh, sexually gratifying act. We Uh, have invited Tina Lampke, Executive Director of Hannah Center, and Liz Franklin, Hannah House Coordinator, and Bridget Nasby, Shelter Outreach and Safe Place Coordinator for the Youth Services Bureau of Monroe County, to offer their input and community advice on this important topic. Ladies, uh, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, um, this is a heavy issue, and we've talked about this before. And um, before we really get it and delve into a conversation, uh, we do have that audio clip queued up, and we're going to play that at this time. Human trafficking is believed to be the third largest criminal enterprise on earth with the kinds of customers you would never suspect ordering sex online as easily as they might order a meal. New legislation and state initiatives are starting to take shape, however, with an aim to end modern day slavery. Hopefully we're going to do a great deal to help prevent some of the horrific, really horrific crimes. Human trafficking in this country is almost always sex slaves, and it's been reported in every state, making headlines in California, Tennessee, and Missouri just this weekend. According to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, some 3,000 kids reported as runaways were likely trafficked last year. 3,000! And that's just a fraction. I lost my virginity and was raped. The new documentary, I Am Jane Doe, highlights young women such as J.S. When I grow up, I'd like to be a doctor. She was first victimized at age 15. We will never be the family we were. 
Many of the websites, motels, and storefronts that act as covers for these crimes go unchecked until it's too late. Today, Missouri attacked the issue head on. Republican Congresswoman Ann Wagner introduced bipartisan legislation to make it easier for victims to sue websites that post illegal ads related to human trafficking. And Missouri's Attorney General Josh Hawley made good on a campaign promise. I'm going to do everything in my power to stop it. Missouri will now have first-in-the-nation regulations using consumer protection laws to combat human trafficking, one of many new initiatives focused on ending the problem for good. You know, b- before we get uh, really deep into questions and discussions, um, Clarence mentioned early on that tonight's uh, content may not be suitable for young listeners. And that got me to thinking. Uh, You do want to educate uh, young people about sex trafficking, but how how young do you want to start? We have a curriculum here in Indiana through the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Programs that works with schools um, and can start as early as fifth grade. And the content may change a little bit as they get older and they're they're able to take on more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it can start as early. It's just, you know, it's starting with understanding what do healthy relationships look like? What does healthy touch look like? What are internet, what does internet safety look like for those age groups? Um, and you can, ex- you can explore that a little bit more as they get older and they develop further. I think it's also important um, to note, while I agree that with the, the Indiana curriculum not starting in schools any earlier than, than fifth grade, um, the youngest reported human trafficking victim we found, sex trafficking victim we found in Indiana was seven years old. So, uh, you know, for, I think from a very early age, it's important to teach children that their bodies are their own. Um, something my husband and I uh, caught a lot of flack from, from older relatives about. Uh, but, you know, someone would say, give me a kiss and I'll give you that cookie, give you this cookie. And we would step in and say, no. He can give you a kiss if he wants to, and you can give him the cookie if, if he wants to. Um, but that, that's his decision, and you know, people thought we were making a lot out of uh, nothing, but that's what happens when you have two social workers for parents. Um, you want to step in and try to interact with your children, your grandchildren, um, so that they, they won't be groomed or, or you know, pulled into these kind of situations. You know, we, we had a conversation actually a couple years ago uh, that was centered around the Super Bowl uh, because I've learned that the Super Bowl, uh, the Indy 500, uh, even NCAA tournaments, uh, even, believe it or not, political conventions mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, places where there are large gatherings. And then I learned that it's not so much... Um, the handlers or the victims that drive the business, it's supply demand, it's the demand. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot, it's wrapped around finance. It's wrapped around how much money can be made in the course of whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the sickening part of it, people being treated as commodities. And uh, Bridget, you and I talked a little earlier about just this mindset. Can you elaborate on, say, the maybe a profile for a, a, a possible handler or, or whatever you're comfortable or an expert on, if you could share. Sure. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at this. Um, and like you heard in the clip, 
human trafficking is a fast, the fastest growing criminal enterprise there is. Um, and so I think when you're looking at this, you can look at the relationships that people have with their traffickers. And we were talking before the show, a lot of times these are um, the survivors and are actually very close to the people who traffic them. Um, and then there's the differences between whether it's a large-scale enterprise or just, you know, something small like a family trafficking a child or a boyfriend trafficking a girlfriend. Um, so it can be that small as well. When you're looking at large sporting events like the Super Bowl and major um, events like that, you're probably going to look at the larger-scale enterprises, um, but you're still going to have those types of relationships there no matter where they're at. Um, there's probably, there's a lot of people out there who are much more um, probably eloquent in what's happening more than so than myself. Um, and we have some more resources that we can talk about later as well. Um, but they're still going to, you're going to see people that may be dressed in very nice suits and look like normal everyday people, um, but are selling other people. Um, and so it doesn't always come off the way you may think about it in the movies. Um, there's not this so-called, you know, pimp or something like that that looks like that. Um, it's going to be somebody who looks like your so everyday average person. Forget the, uh, well, don't forget it, but it, it goes beyond the traditional stereotype of a pimp. Uh, Very with, much with so. With a cane and flashy clothes. Very exactly. much so. And, uh, and uh, Tina, you, you mentioned something about a seven-year-old victim, mm -hmm. the youngest that you found. So when you see a victim that young, is, that a, is it always a situation of domestic abuse? Um, it usually is. Uh, sometimes it's children in foster care. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a very vulnerable population. Um, more so in the past, there were issues with children in state-run care facilities or privately-run care facilities. Um, you know, for in my own experience, um, over ninety percent of the women that I've worked with who've been trafficked have been been brought into it by their mothers. Wow. Now, Tina, uh, you and uh, Liz are from Hannah House. Mm -hmm. Bridget, you're from the youth shelter. Uh, Middleway House is not represented here tonight, but all of you end up dealing with victims of uh, sex trafficking, is that correct? Yes. In one way or another. So where do your roles intersect? Mm -hmm. is, well, is there a common point or, or what? I think it depends. Um, and one, I'd say Middleway House is pretty well represented since we have Liz here who worked with them for uh, over 37 years. Yeah. Okay, okay, we, we can <laughs> so, run with that. Um, yeah, can, from you can, from you representing can discipline yeah. him after the show. Uh, uh, he didn't know any better. <laughs> But, uh, you know, definitely if we, you know, if for an example, someone came into our facility for a pregnancy test, mm -hmm. teenager, and we felt like they were at risk, um, our first, the first thing we would do would be to, to talk to them about going to the youth shelter. Um, you know, that's a safe place. We know that um, they'll get excellent care there mm -hmm. um, and, and that they're all their needs will be assessed um, because, you know, as we talked about, um, sometimes the needs are very great. Um, people who are trafficked often aren't given good nutrition, good health care. Um, you know, we had a, a situation here where we, um, a few years ago, where um, a woman was trafficked in from Africa 
and was living in IU housing. And uh, she was brought over to the U.S. from Botswana with the idea that she was going to work nights, uh, evenings in a daycare center and be able to go to school during the day. And instead, when she she got here, um, they changed what city she was going to. She arrived at uh, an apartment, was given an address for an apartment here in uh, Bloomington, uh, one of the, the campus housing, and found out that she was actually going to be providing nanny services as a slave. And uh, the woman who brought her here took her passport and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over the next several the year, I think it was a year and a half, um, she was mistreated, abused, um, refused medical care, denied adequate nutrition. Um, she finally only escaped when she had a cyst so large she couldn't function anymore. And uh, she went to the hospital and had surgery the next day. Um, so I think that's one of the things where um, all of us, like you said, we, we have to get this stereotype out of our head and realize you know, anyone can be involved in, in this uh, type of industry. Um, Ohio, which is one of the, um, the worst states for human trafficking, I think they're ranked fourth um, in the US and are the only one that's, that's not a border state um, that is ranked that high. But they recently had a sting, I believe it was in November, um, and they arrested 104 men. Um, and when you look at some of the jobs of these men and you look at some of the faces, you know, a 22-year-old college student, um, a gentleman who is a physician in an emergency room, um, a church youth director, uh, it's heartbreaking, you know, to realize um, just how many people are involved either as consumers um, or um, on the supply end of um, trafficking women, children, and men. That's something we also don't want to forget. Yeah. Uh, boys and men are also trafficked as well. Absolutely. Men are trafficked. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, especially young boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that as well. Um, I know we were talking about the intersection for all of our services and for us. So we see kids come in for a variety of different reasons. Um, they may come in from foster placements. They may come in, you know, mm-hmm. be placed with us through DCS. They can be placed with us through parents. They can come in on their own through safe place um, and we do a, a questionnaire with all of the kids that come through our services um, it's become part of our mandate just because this is becoming such a prevalent problem because we want to make sure that we can identify those kids our kids have more vulnerabilities typically speaking when they're coming to our, use our services um, and so we want to make sure we identify any red flags that we may see um, or not see just by asking these questions um, to make sure we're catching that and get getting that information and getting those kids the services that they need. The youth shelter um, can provide a lot, but like you were saying, they we can't provide everything. Um, trafficking victims often need um, services that go beyond what we can provide. We're starting to see in the state specialized care facilities specifically focused um, for survivors of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, that have a different set of um, therapies that they use to work with with them um, just because of some of the struggles and challenges um, that they will face. 
um, because I think it's important to remember, mm -hmm. like we said, victims don't always identify as victims. They've had to try to overcome s things that we we cannot even begin to imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and like we said earlier, it may not have been the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And so it's important to remember that they may now ask you for help. They may not even see that they need help. Um, and it's important just to know what you can do in that moment so you can report it um, because that person may not come to you and it's not their responsibility to us either. Um, I think as the general public, it's our responsibility to help that person. Right. I well, think one yeah. of the things that we, uh, those of us who all work in social service, I think we have come to the place of realizing that we sort of cross-connect even though we all have very different missions and maybe even different groups of folks that we work with but in some sense we are uh, like codependent upon each other to make uh, sure that we're getting the services provided mm -hmm. so as far as being able to use the youth shelter making sure we're contacting middleway house when that need arise and also with hannah house and you know and those are agencies that we you know have each other on speed dial to be able to do for referral. And so I don't think that here, like in Monroe County, any of the social services are independently setting alone anymore and just doing one thing anymore. Um, like I said, I've been with, I worked with Middleway for like 37 years. So I was kind of back in the old days when we kind of just started and, and where we were just, a lot of the agents were, were stand sort of independent of themselves, but because of the complexity of of the needs of the clients that are coming in and the things that are happening in our society, we as agency are kind of codependent upon one another. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. Provide, yeah, to mm -hmm. provide services. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the city of Bloomington has done an excellent job um, facilitating that, um, as well as just, you know, just natural grassroots grassroots groups have sprung up um, to to help connect us and help us see how we can work together and not reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Well, if you just tuned in to bring it on, we're having a very informative conversation with uh, Tina Lampke, Executive Director of the Hannah Center, and Liz Franklin, Hannah House um, Coordinator and Bridget, uh, Hannah House Director, and Bridget Nasby, Shelter Outreach and Safe Place Coordinator for the Youth Services Bureau of Monroe County. Now, in doing some, some background research before this show, I read an interesting article and just totally astounded me in Northeast Indiana, and I, I won't name the city, but they had a bust back in August. You mentioned 104 people. They rescued 36 women, over 30 women mm -hmm. in this northeast part of the country, uh, of the state. Um, uh, many of them were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they were there. And this speaks to the Stockholm dynamic that you're alluding to. Maybe not against their perceived will, but they have been so conditioned, unfortunately, mm -hmm. that this Survivally was just how condition. we survived. Mm -hmm. Survivally conditioned yes. is what I would call it. And as they were sort of... Uh, um, debriefing after the after the arrests and after they were trying to do a deep analysis on okay how could this happen many of them came to the conclusion that Indiana for all intents and purposes is a crossroads state mm -hmm. and yes. if you look north-south corridors uh, 65 69 other roads 
east west 70 80 94 my old william and i are from northwest indiana i mean 80 94 is sort of the the main corridor for a number of states um and so indiana presents itself as this sort of ideal place to run such a perverted enterprise and so we we have the indy 500 one of the most the greatest spectacle in racing um and of course that's a magnet for a lot of entrepreneurs um if you can and you and you said something interesting that let's get these myths out of our mind about how these movie depictions sort of paint the picture Mm -hmm. like you have taken where liam neeson (coughs) And now he's in the third iteration of that where he's going to bust in and rescue not only his daughter but someone else and on and on. And then J-Lo had one where she was in an abusive relationship uh, and she was trained, and I forget who trained her, um, but it was empowering for women to watch to say, well, I can fight back. But a lot of these myths we need Mm -hmm. to debunk. Uh, It's not that way. And, And when you told me earlier that, Sometimes they know, well, a lot of times they know. Yep, 90% of the time. Yeah. They know their trafficker. That is. Um, And 60% of that uh, is a familial or um, romantic partner. Another percent, good, I'm not sure the number off the top of my head, but another large percentage of that are um, gang activities. Um, Mm -hmm. In in a lot of areas, uh, human trafficking has overtaken drug trafficking as the business of choice of gangs Um, and whereas internationally um, we have a situation where people are are, you know sending people here to be trafficked um, in the gang world they're more likely to recruit from within their own neighborhood Mm -hmm. and sometimes that recruitment is done by offering protection other times that recruitment is done by saying if you don't I will kill your mom I will kill your brother do you want to come or do you want me to take your little sister it's up to you um, so that's, you know, it, it's become a, a, a large business enterprise for a lot of different types of criminals. It's mm-hmm. a white-collar crime and, you know, a gang-related crime and a familial crime. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was wondering about the uh, tactics that they use. I know sometimes they can be um, um, just pretty, uh, pretty smooth in their approach. Mm-hmm. But then I was watching a, a YouTube video a few weeks ago, a woman was walking down a a dark street with her daughter. A van pulled up, knocked the mother down, snatched the daughter, and drove off. I don't know if she ever saw her again, but is that a real scenario? Are are they that brazen? They can be. There are people who experience that, so I don't want to say that people don't because there are still survivors Mm -hmm. who that was their experience, and I want to allow them to to say that. And so, Mm -hmm. but... We also see a lot of times, like we were saying, you see the, the relationship of the trafficker. Um, from Polaris Project, um, they do a lot of data surrounding human trafficking, and they run the National um, Human Trafficking Hotline. Their top five recruitment tactics are identified as intimate partner or marriage proposition. And keep in mind, this can be across borders or not. So like you were saying earlier, Um, someone doesn't have to move across any kind of border to be trafficked. It can be right in the state. It can be right in the town. It can be right in the house. It doesn't have to be this where we're flying someone over from somewhere else. Um, Number two was familial, um, and we see that here, um, especially with some of the rises in substance abuse. Um, 
someone posing as a benefactor, so that labor trafficking case that we were talking about earlier, someone saying, you know, we're going to pay for you to go to school if you come here and work for us and do some nanny work after school, things like that. Um, job offers or advertisements, you'll see that a lot in labor trafficking, like agricultural work. Um, there you may see where um, immigration is, is part of, of that. Um, and as well as just, you know, false promises, fraud. But then you use tactics like the cycles of, of abuse and, and love. You use tactics of um, for grooming. It's, you know, getting to know them, buying things, um, giving people what they naturally need. We all need connection. We all want to feel love. If you've had the vulnerability some of our kids um, and some of the women have experienced, so if you come from a background of abuse or neglect or you come from poverty, sometimes it can kind of create this entire scenario where people are just really isolated um, or feeling left out or feeling unloved. And someone can provide that to you, but then you have to do this for me. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of tactics that traffickers can take um, to exploit the vulnerabilities of the people. That's how they identify them. They're smart. Um, they know what they're doing and they know how to exploit people's needs in order to get what they want. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to kind of look at a lot of those vulnerabilities and see where we can be protective factors in those vulnerabilities. And that's what a lot of our work tends to surround um, is looking at how we can build up those protective factors around the people we, can, we work with. Yeah, I think one of the populations that we're forgetting, and I know that I've seen, I think one of the populations we're forgetting is there has been also older people have mm -hmm. been trafficked. And a lot of times we don't really, we haven't said that. And so a lot of times when the people are thinking of trafficking, we're thinking of children or we're thinking of very young girls like preteens or, or early 20s and things like that. But there has been seniors that have been trafficked that have been promised, uh, you know, even from other countries to come in if you do, you know, service work and they come in because it's like they've been promised, like you will give me money to be able to take care of my family there. And it goes back to that familiar because they've been, you know, they know that person in their country and then they're like, oh, I have a daughter and a son or whatever here in the States. And if you go, I'm going to provide this for you to be able to take care of your family home. And they end up, you know, Slave traffic, slave mm -hmm. labor for 17 years mm -hmm. or yeah. more. That happens, and we don't see that particular group. I mean, unfortunately, I have, but seen some in that particular group, but we don't look at that senior group, you know, that are 50 and older mm -hmm. <laughs> that are actually being used as well. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things um, that I want to talk about at some point, and, and I know on the other side of this there's rescue and then there's a long road back to normalcy if that can ever be achieved or it may it might be the new normal after rescue and then how can victims ever extend trust to another human um, mm -hmm. I mean I, and, and then as a and another question as a father of, of two young girls, um, how vigilant and what should I do? Or if you have two young boys, for that matter, mm -hmm. I mean, what you're sharing tonight, um, just as parents, what can we do? So maybe if we can at least talk about there's rescue, and that can come in many forms. In, in this one northeastern portion of the state, FBI worked in coordination with local officials, and they 
did a raid and they rescued. Um, and then you do training. I imagine um, that you all do extensive training on red flags. Mm-hmm. See, if you see something, say something. What does that something look like? So, so yeah. let's start there, and we'll, we'll cover some of those other areas. Okay, so I want to look at red flags. Um, so I think we kind of talked about, you know, what we need to remember about it. But when you're looking at red flags, um, there's two different ways you can look at it. So we've kind of mentioned two different forms of trafficking. Um, but a lot of the red flags will look similar, but some of them will look different. So when you're, you may notice for labor trafficking, People who don't know where they're at seem confused coming to your house to sell things. Someone who doesn't seem to get out of the house. Um, so if you're at someone's residence, there's someone obviously taking care of kids or taking care of home things. Doesn't look like they um, interact with that family. Or, I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. feelings. I'm not as well-versed in labor trafficking. Um, so I think that's something you want to kind of, and it's a little bit harder to see sometimes. Um, what we've seen here um, and people have experienced is, a lot of times ours, the kids that we've had, they've come from another country. Um, their whereabouts and why they got here are just very convoluted. There's not a lot of clarity on um, who's bringing them here, where they're going, why they're going where they're going. They don't know a lot of details. Um, you know, we look at things like that. Um, red flags in terms of um, potential um, victims of sex trafficking. Um and this is true of labor trafficking, like looking at signs of possible physical, emotional, mental abuse, neglect. Um, so um, when you were talking about signs that there was obviously they weren't getting medical attention, there was malnourishment, things like that, um, may have a significant other who's much older. Um, that doesn't always mean that, but there can be some things if that person speaks for them. So there's always an older person who's speaking for them. They're not really taking on a voice of their own. They're not encouraged to talk. Um, Inconsistencies in stories. So if you ask them questions, they come up, their stories change, details are missed. Um, You might start looking at that. Um, Sometimes we see tattoos or some sort of jewelry or some kind of marking that would indicate some type of ownership. Um, That can be something... um, unusual displays of anxiety, fear, um, inhibition around law enforcement. Um, You can also see very scripted um, speech. So when you ask questions, it's very much word for word over and over and over again. Um, Not receiving medical care. You can tell, um, you can look, their teeth aren't taken care of, if cuts and bruises aren't taken care of, if things, you know, um, with our kids, we're looking, do you have an unusual amount of knowledge about sexual activities that don't seem developmentally appropriate? Um, do you talk about things that are developmentally in a, you know, developmentally inappropriate? Um, if, you're, if we have kids that are missing a lot of activities or school, so it's something to keep in mind, kids who are being trafficked, people who are being trafficked can still participate in community. They are not always mm-hmm. locked up in a house somewhere. Um, they can still be part and still be walking around with all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's noticing sometimes the small details. Um, with our kids, we have to look at, are they having reoccurring STIs um, as well? Um, things like that uh, can be some of the things that we look for. 
We notice sometimes if you see the same person bringing multiple people in for a pregnancy test, that can mm-hmm. definitely be a red flag. Um, we had you know, a situation here in Bloomington uh, where started out a mom trafficking her daughter uh, just for money. It started out just for extra spending money to go on a vacation. And then she... Uh, you know, gave part of the money to her daughter, convinced her this was, you know, okay. And um, then she was actually grooming the daughter to then bring her friends in. And, you know, by the time this was discovered, um, we had seven or eight, you know, beautiful teenage girls who went went to local high schools, um, involved in cheerleading, involved in basketball, involved in debate and, and student government who were involved in, uh, you know, who had been manipulated, um, and, and they saw um, the, the person, you know, the mom who started all this out as their boss, um, definitely didn't see her as their pimp, and, um, you know, she gave it, you know, the name escorts instead of the name prostitutes, but, um, you know, it's uh, you. You were mentioning like how how do we prepare our children? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we we do that from the very beginning by um, making sure our children are listened to, um, making sure that we teach our kids. I I, I believe that um, kids have the you know not always, but they often have that capability of knowing if something's just not right, if it doesn't mm-hmm. feel right. Um, and, and not, pu- you know, pushing your child. If your child, um, you know, is seven or eight years old and they don't like their their baseball or softball coach, um, it, it, to me it's much more important to take them out of a situation where they feel uncomfortable than to teach them to stay with it and commit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, with, of course, the explosion in social media mm-hmm. in the last decade or two, you know, that that's a huge way um, people are being drawn into this. Absolutely. Kids Absolutely. are no- notoriously, um, they, they make friends mm-hmm. in a day. My best friend I just met this morning. Absolutely. By the time school's out, we're best buds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Mom, Dad, can I go on a play date? And then ultimately, Mom, Dad, can I? Spend the night. night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as parents, y- you want to be so trusting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's okay to say no. And, and it used to be, I want to meet their parents first. Mm-hmm. You can meet their parents. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and from what I'm hearing and picking up tonight, mm-hmm. uh, you had to be so vigilant that that may just be both families will meet, meet at a park for a picnic, mm-hmm. and that'll be the encounter. Right. Uh, because mm-hmm. it's for keeps these days. It is. You know, our, our children often call us overprotective, and I remind them that they're alive and well and <laughs> living, right. you know, living good lives. Uh, but, yeah, that was something, you know, it, as a new mom, it just um, dumbfounded me how kids in the neighborhood would just come up and knock on my door and ask if they could come in and play. And I'm like, well, where's your mom? Well, she told me to get out. She wanted to take a nap. Okay, um, this is unusual, all right. Um, and, you know, I, I think we have to to go back, you know, to really 
getting to know people. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you may want to have a rule in your family that, you know, not just I have to meet their parents, mm-hmm. but we need to be friends. You know, they need to come over to the house, that kind of thing. We have about four minutes left. And um, we touched a little bit on what does recovery look like. But as you, as we prepare for final statements, if you can share with us in your practice, in your profession, how do you work with survivors and what does recovery look like? And if you could take maybe a minute each. I think for us, we're always looking to refer people to specific services, counselors who've worked with victims of of human trafficking, um, and making sure our part in this community is to educate the community, educate the kids so that they know what to do. Um, I have to say, if you think you see something, please report it. Um, The National Human Trafficking Hotline, that number is 1-888-373-7888. Please put that in your phone. So if you see something, you can call it immediately and give the tip. It's so important. You don't have to always step in. You don't have to be the savior. You don't have to be the rescuer. Report it um, so that we can look at that and we can um, identify those those people. I think it's important to realize, too, that uh, people who have been involved in trafficking, people who have been abused, neglected, um, and victimized, can heal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, they absolutely can heal. And I think the, the number one way um, we help them, you know, it, through our agency is by developing a relationship with them, a professional relationship and becoming a trusted person. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way you can begin to restore trust is by being around people you can trust. Right. Um, and then, and then also too, it's, you know, a very, extensive treatment program. It's individual counseling. It's group counseling. It's, um, you know, getting involved in survivors groups. Um, it's going to the dentist and to the OB and um, getting back on track educationally. I mean, that's a, a huge part of the the puzzle, you know, they, that they often are behind in school because mm-hmm. of what they've been forced to do. Um, while time I, is eluding us, and uh, I'm going to defer to to Liz in just a second. Just want to let you know before I forget to say this that we want to form a partnership of, of sorts with all of you um, to to provide you a platform to talk about trends and intervention and interdiction type strategies. The other thing that uh, I want to let you know is that that um, our audience should know is that you partner with churches, you partner mm-hmm. with other entities, and um, there is a, a gentleman we had invited tonight was um, unable to join us, but uh, maybe we can get a Pastor Shunk on who has uh, done some phenomenal things in the past with intervention and has uh, came on before to talk mm-hmm. about that. We're going to get him back on. We're going to get you all back on. But I just want to thank you all for coming on out. Now, Liz, you had a point to, to share there. No, I think the only <laughs> thing that I wanted to say is I just we have to remember that um, anyone – is potentially a victim. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to just change the mindset. And I think we do that Mm -hmm. through awareness and education that anyone is potentially, regardless of age and sex and race, um, and that we have to go beyond a lot when you were talking about children, no longer teaching them just stranger danger. Right. You know, that is no longer the norm. I mean, I hate to say that, but we have to teach them beyond that. And, and monitor their social media 
Yeah, um, you just don't yeah, turn a kid absolutely. loose or or a young teen or a teen loose. I mean, it, there has to be better proactive. Even yeah, I mean, well, our trust know. factor, even mm-hmm. adults, I yeah. mean, That's, you know, so, yeah. you know. There are a lot of resources out there that can give you the list of what apps to watch, how to put those um, security measures on phones. Okay, and okay, we'll let well, that be the last word. Yeah, we, we are absolutely out of time, but I just want to say I can't help uh, but to have this, this stereotype still in my mind about girls and young kids being trafficked. So that means we need to get you back so you can educate me and Clarence some more. That's right. Um, We want to thank Tina Lamke, Executive Director of the Hannah Center, and Liz Franklin from Hannah House, and Bridget Nesby from Shelter Outreach and Safe Place Coordinator for the Youth Services Bureau of Monroe County for joining us to shine a spotlight on sex trafficking. Um, At this time, we we are going to transition into... um, at the top of the hour we share that we want to talk about Kobe Bryant so we'll go ahead and make that transition now I wanted to be one of the best basketball players to ever play anything else that was outside of that lane I didn't have time for I play games with the flu I play games with 102 degree fever man this obstacle cannot define me it's not going to cripple me it's not going to be responsible for me stepping away for the game that I love. I'm gonna step away on my own terms. Because when I retire, I didn't wanna have to say, I wish I would have done more. I would watch Magic play, I'd watch Michael play, and I would see them do these unbelievable things, and I'd say, you know, can I get to that level? I don't know, but let's find out. Well, that voice you heard, of course, uh, was the late Kobe Bryant, who was was tragically, along with eight other individuals, um, taken from us, and uh, our hearts were still in shock um, over this. And you know, this we want to talk about that a little bit. The uh, Kobe Bryant leaves behind his daughters Natalia, Bianca, and Capri, who was born in June, and his wife Vanessa. Bryant joined the NBA right out of high school, becoming the league's youngest ever player, and spent the next 20 seasons of his professional career with the Los Angeles Lakers. Here by phone to discuss his NBA accomplishments and worldwide impact is bringing on contributor Cornelius Wright, who also hails from the Golden State. Cornelius, uh, are you there? Welcome to Bring It On. Are you there? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you guys doing? I'm doing fine. We're also going to get you back on and talk about your comedic adventures as a stand-up comedian. And when you're a multimillionaire, don't forget us. I won't forget my little folks. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. oh he's, he's got jokes. He's okay. <laughs> but on a serious, somber note, um, I'm still riveted. And people I've talked to today were all stunned. There, there still are, are, are no real answers as to what happened. All we know is that now there's a void and, and nine individuals have left. Multiple family members are impacted, and, um, you know, because of his star power, attention is being drawn to Kobe Bryant, and, and that's understandable. Um, but, wow, what a void now has been created. And, Cornelius, your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I, I would like to give my condolences to Vanessa and her three daughters, uh, to his dad, Joe Jellybean Bryant, and his mom. His dad, for a lot that don't know, played with Dr. J on with the Philadelphia 76ers. And I'd also like to uh, give my prayers and condolences to all the other families uh, who were lost on the flight and uh, 
it just it's just so sad. But uh, the one thing when I think about Kobe Bryant, it almost goes beyond basketball. Uh, he was the age of my two sons, and watching him grow up as a young man, I was just really moved and riveted on how much he inspired other people of all ages. Um, you mentioned how he came straight from high school, but what a lot of people don't realize, he was the first guard to go straight to the NBA. Most of the other people that went were 6'10 and above and were just monsters when the NBA was a game for big men. So, so he went in as a young man, as a young kid, who really didn't fit in. He was a, a little boy uh, who was playing against men. So he was such an inspiration watching him grow as a player and as a man. Uh, it, it's just really a shame. Um, you know, when none of us are perfect, and he had his ups and downs, and there was a, an event that happened several years ago. But I, I think it's really interesting how the end of his life, he became an advocate for women's sports, especially yeah. women's basketball with his daughter. Um, watching him retire, so many people struggle with retirement, and two years later he wins an Academy Award. Uh, he, he was just such a, a bright, gifted young man. He, he's the kind of young black man that we need as role models, and uh, he's gone way too soon. You know, you, you look um, at his start in the NBA, and it dawned on me 20 years um, and I'm like, that's right, 20 years. And, you know, you look at LeBron James, who will make a mark not only in the NBA, but then also when he leaves. But yet these two come from high school right into the pros. And we've seen other examples of we've seen other attempts at trying to make that transition. And, and a lot of them had rocky starts and bumpy careers and so, sort of flamed out. But there was something different about these two individuals, but in particular, Kobe, uh, who grew up in Italy, uh, could speak fluently in Italian. And as you mentioned, just artistically gifted and had an entrepreneurial mind. Uh, speak to us a little bit about uh, how he changed the game as the youngest guard to come in from high school. Well, it, it was very interesting, and, and I don't know so much if he changed the game as so far as took it to the next level. So many players wanted to be just like Mike. And he probably is the only one that has even come close to achieving those goals. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that he changed his number. He was number eight when he first came into the league and later changed his number to 24, which to me was indicative of Kobe Bryant because the reason he changed it to 24 was because he said it would take 24 hours in a day for him to reach the potential to become the greatest basketball player he could be. It wasn't because uh, his, uh, not nemesis, but another icon was number 23? Well, uh, he basically said it was the 24 hours in a day. Okay. That's what okay. it would take to be the greatest player that you could be. And he basically stated that in life. Whatever you want to do, find your passion and spend your days and your life perfecting that passion, and you'll become the greatest at whatever it is that you are, whatever your passion is. And, and that's just, that's a lesson for adults, that's a lesson for children, is find your passion and work towards it. Um, he was just an incredible young man, and to think at 41 years old, to win an Academy Award two years out, an author, what would the rest of his life have been like? Um, he's a shining star. 
No, Cornelius, uh, I heard Kobe being described, uh, uh, especially when he first came into the league, as, as not the biggest and not the strongest, but that what set him apart from other basketball players was his, uh, his work ethic, if you will. Um, and, and they talk a lot about what he did in the offseason to train and to stay in shape. What, what, what do you know about that? Well, there's a thing that's called Mamba mentality. And that was Kobe in a nutshell. And as you mentioned, he wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the fastest, he wasn't the strongest. But as he stated, nobody but nobody will outwork him. And when you see the work ethic that he put, and I'll tell you a little story. As I said, he came in at 18 years old in a league full of grown men with a lot of hype and a lot of potential, which leads to a lot of jealousy in some cases. And let's go back to his first season. He's a rookie in the NBA playoffs. And basically his coach at the time, who was fired, and some of the other players said, okay, Mr. Hotshot, win the game for us. And he threw up three air balls at the end of the game, and they lost by three points. And he left the game. He, went to, he got back to Los Angeles from Utah and went straight to the gym and started shooting the whole summer a 1,000 shots a day. That was Kobe Bryant. A lot of people would have folded. A lot of people would have said the pressure was too much. Nope. His attitude was, that'll never happen to me again. And he just went to work. And, you know, you, you have to admire someone who puts in the work to become the person he wants to become. So, yeah, his work ethic was legendary. Uh, there was a player was talking about this yesterday. They went to the gym early. They were playing the Lakers. And he said he got there so he could get an hour and a half work in, workout in before the game. And when he got there, Kobe was already there working out. He said he put in an hour and a half, was leaving the gym, heard the ball bouncing, and Kobe was still there. And the player asked him, he said, wait a minute, with all these accolades, you were here before I got here and you're here after. Why? Because I knew you were watching. <laughs> And I wanted to let you know that no matter what you did, you'd never outwork me. That's the Mamba mentality. 80 points. 81. 81. And then 60, was it 60 points in his final game? Yes, indeed. A game that he, that whole season, he hadn't scored over 37. And, uh, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever ruptured your Achilles tendon. I have. And I'll never forget Kobe Bryant in the middle of a game rupturing his Achilles tendon. Instead of being helped off the court, he walked to the free throw line, made his two free throws, then left the court. He was just an amazing competitor with a will to win that was second to none. May have been equaled by Mike, but definitely wasn't uh, second to none. He was, uh, you know, prior to his death, uh, he... Kobe had kind of evolved into uh, a statesman of basketball, if you will. Uh, and it's just kind of ironic that his very last tweet was to LeBron James uh, congratulating him for surpassing his record. And it just really adds to uh, everything else that he had going on, how involved he was with the uh, community. I think you mentioned early on that uh, he was a, a staunch advocate for the WNBA. Correct. And fact of the matter is, 
he was on his way to his academy, which was the Mamba Academy, for a tournament with young girls playing basketball, which is why his daughter was going. His daughter and another one of the young ladies on the flight were on their way to a basketball game. And there was pictures of uh, the hundreds of kids in the gym as they were, as they found out, all praying in the gymnasium. Uh, so he was on his way with his daughter. It was he made. He talked about how he would be out in public with his uh, second oldest daughter, who was the basketball young lady. And people would walk up and say, "Kobe, you and your wife need to have a son so he can continue your legacy." And he said his daughter would always say, uh, "He doesn't need a son for that." I got this. And her goal was to play at UConn and play in the WNBA. And I have a feeling she's probably going to make it. You know, I think of now the other uh, occupants in that helicopter. And again, the investigations are ongoing as we speak. There's still more questions than there are answers. uh, But yet they're grieving families right now. And not lost in all that are young lives cut short and coaches who were on that helicopter and the pilot of that helicopter, a seasoned pilot who was piloting that helicopter. Uh, it just, as we learn more, it just grieves us more. Um, yeah. And here we are a couple of days later, I mean, a day later, trying to make sense out of something that we just have to admit is just unfortunately tragic. Um, for for me, I just had to put my faith in the Lord and realize that he's got a plan that I'll never understand, and there's no need trying to scratch my head to figure something out that mm-hmm. I'll never figure it out. You know, uh, uh, Doc Rivers uh, was articulating that, too, um, and it, it was painful to watch him try to just bring comments to this tragic story. And... Um, and you're right, Cornelius, there's a plan for all of us, and we don't know the time. And if, if one thing a lot of people commented on, don't put off the things you say you're going to do one day. Um, do it now. Do it. Absolutely. And, you know, he was a gentleman who was an entrepreneur, had an entrepreneurial spirit, had talked to movers and shakers, and was in the midst of trying to put things together to better the community. And hopefully that has inspired uh, a lot of premier athletes who uh, perhaps have not caught on yet that, look, I have a platform that I've been granted. What am I going to do with it? Now, one other thing that I want to say, I just have to get this in. It's remarkable, 20 years in the league, 20 years with one team. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and he mentioned that, how he took pride in the fact that he spent 20 years with the Lakers and you know what a lot of folks don't realize? You're a young high school kid that comes into a storied franchise. They won long before Kobe Bryant had even thought about the Lakers. And to put yourself in that magnifying glass and come through with five championships of your own, um, he's going to go down in history. His, his memory is going to be... The other thing is, the generation of players playing today never saw Michael Jordan play. Their Michael Jordan is Kobe Bryant. When you think of the boom of overseas uh, NBA players from foreign countries, the 92 Dream Team brought attention to the NBA, but those players were long retired when these youngsters who are playing now uh, started to watch basketball. Kobe Bryant was their icon. He's by far the biggest figure in China. And his impact truly has made 
the NBA the global force it is today. Well, we're we're just about out of time. Um, a final thought or two, William. Unless you had another question for Cornelius, uh, Cornelius, a thought or two as we sort of wrap this uh, segment off. We have about forty seconds. Uh, enjoy our players. Stop comparing generations. Enjoy each one of our players for their greatness. Uh, embrace them. And on that note, I'll say goodbye. But one one other thing I must say, sports wise, being from the Bay Area in California, is go 49ers. <laughs> I got to put that shameless plug. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, our thanks to bringing on contributor Cornelius Wright, who. Uh, when when uh, Bring It On started, he had Politics 101, which uh, in this year of 2020, we, we might ask him to revisit that. This has been an exciting yeah, year We could so use far. that right now. We could use that. But we want to thank him for joining us to remember the NBA legend, Kobe Bryant. Our thoughts, again, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family and those surviving family members of the other eight individuals who uh, lost their lives on yesterday. Well, thank you. And William and Clarence, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Also, our thanks to Tina Lamke, Executive Director of the Hannah Center, and Liz Franklin of Hannah House, Bridget Nasby, Shelter Outreach and Safe Place Coordinator for the Youth Services Bureau of Monroe County, for joining us to shine a spotlight on sex trafficking. You may have heard me say earlier when Cornelius started that he has sort of uh, caught on to a second career as a stand-up comic, and we talked to him already about that, and We'll, we'll get him back on to uh, bring some laughter into the booth here. Uh, bring It On has an open submission policy, policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is on at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is on at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB's News Department Director, Cade Young. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, February the 3rd. We kick and launch off Black History Month here at 6 p.m. for another Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.